And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet no have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trail that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. At my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our God's the God of the nations, and his word, and his word goes out to the nations. Thank you, Ferris. Uh, if you would, uh, keep Revelation 3 right in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in a seat somewhere in front of you if you need to uh, get it out on a phone, but just get God's word in front of you. And um, as you do, as we, as we heard the words of this letter, um, and as you get there with it in front of you, I just want to uh, uh, put a really simple and yet I think profound or powerful question on the screen uh, behind us. And this question, I think, uh, for both simple things of life and, and, and really big things of life has to be a guiding question, but the question is this, Jesus, what pleases you? That, again, th that, that question is so simple and yet so profound. Like if we would really just stop and ask right now, like with the minutes we have right here to worship, Jesus, what pleases you? What would please you about the way we interact with your word right now? Think about it for the lunch hour after church. Jesus, what, what would please you for that lunch hour? What do you want it to look like? How do you want to shape it? Not just the small things of a day, though, as we think about uh, five-year plans and future and where we're going. Just stopping and asking, Jesus, what pleases you? It's a powerful question. And, and I start with that question because uh, we have something so beautiful in this letter. And what's so beautiful about this letter in which uh, Jesus is authoring and John's recording to this church in Philadelphia is uh, there's, no, there's no area of this letter in which Jesus calls this congregation out. This is nothing but commendation. Jesus commending this church. Only twice in these seven letters do we find this. Uh, this uh, letter here to Philadelphia and also the letter to Smyrna. In both of those churches, there was nothing Jesus was calling out in the congregation. He was just saying, good job, well done. And so the encouragement to us today is that we can look at a letter like this and we can ask Jesus, what can we learn from this congregation that is so pleasing to you that we in turn can learn from and seek to live out in the same way to be pleasing? Uh, in week one, I don't know if you remember, in week one of this series, I started the whole series and I asked, what if Jesus walked through those doors back there and walked around, came up here and he took the microphone, we awkwardly got this headset off me and onto him and, and what, it, what, what would he say to our church? That's what we raised at the beginning. Imagine that he'd stand before a congregation and have nothing but commendation like he does for Philadelphia here. Can you think about the times in your life when someone you deeply respected commended you? 
and the power of that. Wow, we have some stuff we can learn from Philadelphia here in the believers there. A, a little bit about Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a city south of Sardis. So, so last week, if you remember in the letter to Sardis, there was nothing Jesus commended. He's like, right from the get-go, we, I, I got to call you out, okay? We got to deal with some things. This letter, uh, it, it's nothing but commendation from the Lord. But Philadelphia is south of Sardis. And uh, really, uh, for much of Philadelphia's history, they were a fairly prosperous city, and it was often known as the gateway to the east. And yet, there were two uh, really um, uh, devastating events that happened in the history of Philadelphia. The first was an earthquake that happened sometime maybe around AD 17, so about 80 years, roughly 80 years before uh, John is recording these words from Jesus. Um, and this, this earthquake was devastating. And I don't just use that word. It literally was devastating for the city of Philadelphia. It like leveled the city. And, and this earthquake... Uh, it carried with it some aftershocks culturally in the city long after the final aftershock of the earthquake actually stopped. But over a series of decades, the city eventually found its footing again and rebuilt. But then there was another earthquake in a sense, not another literal earthquake, but it, it came in the form of an edict from the Roman emperor. Uh, this was about three years before John's recording these words here. And uh, the emperor Domitian issued an edict that up to half of the vineyards of this area around Philadelphia would be cut down, would be absolutely leveled, and not replanted. Now, you need to understand, um, this was a super lush area for vineyards, and the grape harvest was booming in places like Philadelphia. And this, this really drove so much of their economy. Uh, so much so that the patron god of Philadelphia was the god Dionysus, the god of wine. And so why in the world would the Roman emperor issue an edict that leveled half of such lush vineyards in the Roman Empire? The reason, kind of the public reason uh, given, was uh, to create more ground to plant grains that would in turn feed the Roman army. Many historians believe what was actually going on is Domitian was trying to protect Rome as the ultimate exporter of grapes. And so uh, this was economically disastrous for Philadelphia. And this created some just, uh, I think the word is, some unsettled ground in which the citizens of Philadelphia lived. But this wasn't just an unsettled place for the citizens as a whole. This was an unsettled place for Christians in this city as well. Um, uh, the, the believers in Philadelphia, like many of these cities that we have seen, um, as they declared allegiance to Jesus, they would have been excommunicated or kicked out of the synagogues. And now we hear that and we go, okay, yeah, right, makes sense. They got kicked out of the synagogue. We got to understand something. To be kicked out of their synagogue was to be completely severed from all of their community that they've known. But it wasn't just a, a societal severing. When they were kicked out of the synagogues, um, the Roman Empire gave a bit of some religious leeway to the Jews. And so if your name was on the rolls of a synagogue, you had some semblance of some religious liberties. An example of that is you wouldn't have been made to declare your allegiance to uh, the emperor as lord. But you, you have your name erased from the roles of the synagogue. You have no covering of that. And so the believers in Philadelphia were exposed not only to these antagonistic Jews who were their former brothers and sisters in the faith. They now are exposed to the Roman Empire as well. And so just another absolutely 
tough place to be a Christian. And it's in the midst of that landscape that Jesus identifies himself to these believers in such a beautiful and powerful way. Look at what he says that we read here in verse 7. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, uh, the words, and, and help me out here, the words of the, of the Holy One, the, the true one, and, uh, who, has the, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Again, as we've seen in every letter, Jesus up front identifies himself in a certain specific way that is extremely meaningful for the people in which he's addressing. And he says to the believers in Philadelphia, I'm the Holy One. I believe in saying that it's a statement that Jesus is giving them. I, I'm deity. I'm God. I am holy God who addresses you. He says, I'm the true one. A statement that he himself is the true Messiah that all of the Hebrew scriptures have been pointing to. That those people who have kicked these believers out of the synagogue have denied. He says, no, you're right. You are following the true one the true Messiah, but then kind of to give this all some specific punch, he says, who has the key of David. Now, if you have some Bible background, you know, sitting here today, that King David has deep significance throughout redemptive history. But, but even if you're here and you're like, I have no Bible background, this is the first time I've been in a church, you've probably heard of this David guy, the same David and Goliath. He would arise to become a king in Israel. And as king, God made him a promise. And I want you to see this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, In your house and your kingdom shall be, uh, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, the the Bible continues to pick up on this theme. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, For uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold, with, uh, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is a prophecy, you know, in the book of Isaiah. Any, any, any guesses who this is talking about? Awkward chuckles, but no answer. <laughs> Who's this talking about? Jesus. And you, you see this fulfilled even in how the angel Gabriel appears, appears to Mary and what he says to her. Luke chapter 1, he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and, have, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him. Who, what will the Lord God give to him? The throne of his father, David. And so this Messiah is the one who is to sit on the throne of David as the greater David forever and ever and ever. And now as Jesus addresses himself as the one who holds the key in Revelation chapter 3, 
It is a direct fulfillment of the specific prophecy about this in Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22 says this, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And so Jesus, he says to this faithful group of Christians, I'm the holy one, I'm really God, I'm the true one, I'm really the Messiah, and I am the one who holds the key to the kingdom. And if you are the one holding the key, you have the power. I want you to think of all those powerless feelings you have experienced as you've walked up to a locked house and realized the keys are inside. Or as you've walked up to a locked car and realized the keys are inside, you don't possess the keys. You don't possess the power. Jesus holds the key to the kingdom. The kingdom is his. And what he shuts, no one can open. But what he opens, no one can shut. And he's going to capitalize on this theme to a group of weary Christians on unsettled ground who have just been faithfully enduring in their faith with him. And so um, as we get into this letter, here's what I want to do. Here's kind of the big idea of the whole letter. Jesus commends and blesses. Those are the two parts of it. Jesus commends and blesses the faithful, patient endurance of his people. Now, it's kind of a mouthful there, but we, we really need to unpack today what is faithful, patient endurance. Jesus commends and blesses the faithful, patient endurance of his people. And so today's message in two parts. Part one, uh, we're going to look at the commending of the church. Jesus commending them for their faithful, patient endurance. And we're going to try to get an understanding of what exactly is patient endurance. What does that look like? For them and for us. But then in part two, we're going to make our way through the whole letter and we're going to see all the promises Jesus gives to bless this church and the promises Jesus in turn gives to those of his followers who are patiently enduring in their walk with him. And so let me pray, ask for God's help, and let's, let's get into it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that, Lord, we have a letter before us in which you're commending your followers. And, Lord, you have given this to us as a gift that we might learn here today as followers of you and as one of your congregations. What is it that pleases your heart, Jesus? We want to be about that. And so, God, will you teach us through your word? Will you, will you unleash your power through your word in ways that only you can do? God, please, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So let's look at part one of this letter. Let me just give you the point up front. Jesus commends the faithful, patient endurance of his people. Now, I want to show you that in this letter, but there's a couple things about the way the letter's structured that's important. Where we come across the phrase, you have, he's, he's pointing out the commendable things that they're doing. Where we come across the phrase, I have or I will, Jesus is saying, here is how I'm going to bless. And so uh, we use that as a clue to figure out what is it that the church at Philadelphia is doing? What are the you haves that Christ commends? Um, Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. There's that theme again. We'll come back to it later. Which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet 
and they will learn that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Uh, so in these first couple of verses, these first two and a half verses, we see the phrase you have happen or come about three times. I, I want, before I get to the, to, the, to the latter two, I want to look at the first one. Right there in verse 8, we get to the middle of the verse, and he says, I know that you have, you, I know that you have but what? But little power. Can I just, I, I, let me just call a time out here. In between this letter to the church at Philadelphia and the last letter to the church at Smyrna, the only two letters we have in which Jesus does not call out anything in the congregations, I want us to see that what Christ commends is radically counterintuitive to what culture commends. In the first letter, the letter to Smyrna, they are called poor and persecuted. In this letter to Philadelphia, Christ acknowledges that they are of little power. Uh, Grant Osborne, he, he says this about those two letters. He says, the churches that seem the weakest have the greatest rewards. I think that's really important to instruct us. That the two churches that are commended by Christ are probably not the two churches that culture around them would have looked at, knocked on the door and said, good job. I I just find that encouraging, and I just find that instructive. And I think it's so important that we understand, you know, as we've said again and again through the years, the way of the kingdom is often an upside-down kingdom, upside-down in the sense that what Christ commends and blesses can look radically different from what the world commends and blesses. So he says, I, I know you have but little power, and yet, now we're getting to this, this faithful patient endurance. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Again, in verse 10, we saw the phrase, you have kept my word about patient endurance. Now, what, what in the world is this whole idea of patient endurance or what I'm calling faithful patient endurance? The, the, the idea of patience is the idea of long-suffering. The idea of endurance uh, uh, correlates to the idea of perseverance. And often when we're talking about the idea of endurance or perseverance, we're talking about in the context of, of pain. Often pain is associated with endurance. Often fatigue is associated with endurance. If we need a reminder of that, think of stepping onto a treadmill, right? It, it typically isn't too hard to run one minute on a, or to jog one minute on a treadmill. The problem is, for me, as I come to minute 12, 13, 14, I'm convicted because there's literally someone who's done an Ironman triathlon sitting in like the second row, right? Yeah, like he's like, minute 12? Are you serious, bro? <laughs> By minute 16, I'm feeling it. My, my muscles, my legs, and my, my, my breathing, and something in my brain at that time, mile 17, 18, goes, hey, bro, let's call it a day and go get a donut. 
But there's something about endurance we know that if we won't believe that lie, and if we'll press forward through a bit of that pain, there's great blessing on the other side of that that will last far beyond the momentary nature of the pain we're experiencing. It's not just true for treadmill. That's true for our walk with Jesus as well. That what Jesus looks down on this congregation and he says, I am so pleased with your long-suffering endurance. I'm so pleased that even in the midst of the pain, the fatigue, the exhaustion, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you keep pressing forward. Man, some of you in here, he is so pleased by the power of the Holy Spirit that through the pain, through the exhaustion, and through the fatigue, you just keep pressing forward. He's so pleased with that. And he tells us even more specifically, what are some of the marks of this patient endurance? He says, I know you have little power, and yet you've kept my word. That's a mark of faithful patient endurance. That we would be keepers of the word of God. He has given us his word. I, I hope we've seen that theme throughout these letters. How passionate he is about the keeping of his word. That we would know it. That we would keep it. That as his word instructs us. His word would lead us to affirm the things he affirms. And to deny the things he denies. And when we do that. There are times that as we keep his word, that will flow in the face of culture in some ways that can inflict some pain or some fatigue. And he says, just keep pursuing. He says, not only that you've kept my word, I'm, I'm still in verse 8. He says, it's also that you've not denied my name. This mark of faithful, patient endurance is that we would not deny the name of Jesus Christ. And I know if you're like me, here's my tendency. My tendency is to go, I won't deny his name. I'll never deny his name. Kind of that Peter type mentality. If his name comes up, I won't deny it. I'm just not always going to be the first to bring his name up. See, there's something, and you and I both know this. There's something culturally that people are generally okay and accepting when we talk about God in generic ways. But there's something polarizing when you say the name. And I'd look at us today and say, say the name. As you minister to your coworkers, you don't just believe in a God. You do, but you're a follower of Jesus. As you minister to your neighbors, your prayers over them are in the name of Jesus. Students, as you minister to your friends, you do so as a follower of Jesus. Say the name. We're not ashamed of the name. 
He is the Holy One, the True One, and the holder of the key to the kingdom. We will not shallow that down into generic spiritual language. We'll say the name. And he commends them. You've not denied my name. You have kept my word. You've not denied my name. And he is just heaping this message of how he is pleased with them for their faithful endurance. Now, all we've done up to this point, all we've done up to this point is we've stated that Jesus commends or Jesus is pleased with the faithful, patient endurance of his people. That's all we've done up to this point. But now, I want us to walk through this letter in part, part two of the message. And I want us to look at five ways Jesus promises blessing to his people who endure faithfully. Now, hear me. Please hear me. There's something about this content as we walk through the letter and as we see all the times Jesus says, I will, I have, I have, I have, I will, I have, that like we can, we can leave it purely as informational. We go, that's, hey, that's awesome. That, wow, that's awesome that, 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 that Jesus has made a way to enter his kingdom. Like praise the Lord. But, but that information that we're processing with our head that doctrine we're processing with our head, it's got to crash through this morning into our heart. And it's got, to, it's got to move us to worship over the realities of the promises Jesus says are, are true for his followers patiently enduring. We got to worship over it. And so, so like just a little bit about the worship service when God's people gather. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, if you're like, is this part of it? No, I'm, I'm now time out again on an aside, okay? You all with me? When we worship, when we gather to worship, we don't sing worship and then preach. You're like, no, that's exactly what we do every week. No, listen. We worship through song. And then we worship through the word. And then you worship as you fellowship after it. And we worship as the word of God is read over us in languages that we can't even understand. We're worshiping the God of the nations when that happens. And so what I say, I'm saying all this to say, as we walk through and pull out from this letter five promises Jesus makes to his people patiently enduring, it can't just be like, oh yeah, I get that, I get that, I get that. It's like, I get that. Lunch is different today because I get that. This week's different because I get that. Holy Spirit, help us. All that long diatribe lead into part two of the sermon, which is this. Jesus blesses the faithful, patient endurance of his people. Now let's look at specifically what these blessings are. Go back to verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you what? I've set before you an open door. First way we're blessed through the patient, faithful endurance of following Jesus is this. He has made a way to enter his kingdom. He has made a way to enter his kingdom. Again, he's the one with the key to the kingdom. What he opens can never be shut. Jesus has opened a door for entrance into his kingdom. Hear me now. The way to the kingdom of God is not a multiple door option. It isn't door one, door two, door three. 
I so often, right, we, you know, culture can say that maybe, maybe one possible door into the kingdom is through general spirituality. If I just pick something out there, all roads will lead to heaven. And Jesus says that is patent, patentedly false. Another door that's common, and, and even, if people, even if people don't confess this as their theology, it's often their practical theology, and that door says, if I'm, I think I've been good enough, I think I've been good enough, and maybe that door will get me to the kingdom. There's one door, and in the Gospels, Jesus taught that he is the door. He said, the, the road is broad, that leads to destruction, and many are finding it, but the road is narrow that leads to life, and only a few will find it. He is that narrow door. My question, have you entered the kingdom by the narrow door that is Jesus Christ? He invites you to himself by faith. He says, to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Will you come today? Well, in your seat today, you say, Jesus, I see that my sin is separated from you. I see that I've been on the broad road that leads to destruction. Jesus, save me from my sin. I confess you as Lord. And will you enter the kingdom by the narrow door? So the blessing says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one's able to shut. I've given you a way into the kingdom. Second blessing for those of his who are patiently enduring, he lays our opponents low. He lays our opponents low. Now, where am I getting this? Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. He says, now, let's talk about the, the, those who are part of the synagogue of Satan. Remember, Jesus has identified himself as the Holy One and the True One, the one with the key of David. These Christians have believed that. They have believed the Hebrew scriptures that have pointed to that. The, 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 the rest of the Jewish community here who have kicked them out and have excommunicated them, they have denied Jesus as the Holy One, the True One, and the one holding the key of David. They've denied Jesus' lordship, and they're oppressing these Christians because of it. And Jesus says, those opponents, one day, I will bring before you, and they will bow down before your feet. I will bring them low. Christians, opponents to the gospel, and because you are gospel people, opponents of yours, are in God's hands to be brought low one day, not your hands. You don't need to worry about bringing them low. In fact, some of you today who maybe are so ticked off by something or some opponent, some gospel opponent that you've been trying to bring low for years, be freed, okay? It's not your job. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. And he's a whole lot better at it than we are. And so he says, I'll bring them before you. I'll, I'll lay your opponents low. The third blessing. He keeps us from the hour of trial when he comes, when he returns. Look what it says in verse 10. 
says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And then verse 11 begins with these words, these potent words that we need to heed. I am coming. I'm coming soon. He says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. Uh, Jesus has come once. In his first coming, he was um, born of a virgin and laid in a manger. We celebrated at Christmas. That was the first advent. But Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, he will gather his believers to himself and he will unleash judgment on the unbelief of the world. The beautiful promise that we have here is that we will be delivered from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So the, the second coming of Jesus is not something that has to make us anxious. It's something we anticipate. That's the promise held out for those who are truly his. And those who are truly his will be those who are patiently enduring until that day comes. And he reminds us in verse 11, I'm coming soon. He's coming soon. I don't know when, but I do know soon. I know he's come once, and what's left is for him to come again. May he find us ready, awake, and alert for that day. The blessing of that. This fourth blessing that he promises to those of his who are patiently enduring is this. He invites us into his presence permanently. Now look at what it says here in verse 12. He says, the one who conquers, and he gives a picture here. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, what's a pillar do? What's a pillar? Uh, hold something up, right? A pillar holds something. A pillar is a, it's a picture of stability and permanence. So think about what he's saying. Think about what he's saying to a group of people who've been kicked out of the place of worship in their, in their city. You will be invited in to the presence of God, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And then he says this, never shall he go out of it. This is a promise and a blessing of the permanent reality of being in the presence of God. Never will that door be shut on you and you will be on the outside looking in of God's place of worship. And then this fifth blessing, he identifies us as children of the king and citizens of the kingdom. This is beautiful. Back in verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him. And there's three names Jesus says he's going to write on this faithful, patient, endurance, enduring follower of him. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, 
which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the name of my God? Uh, if you can, if, if, if you're in the room and you've, you've had children, uh, there's, you're in the hospital room in the first couple of days, and then, I don't know, the next day or two days later, uh, someone walks in the room, and it's a recorder. They're going to record the legal name of this child. And you, as mom and dad, you get the right to give this child, this son of yours or this daughter of yours, a first name. But not only do you get the right to give the son of yours or this daughter of yours a first name, that son of yours or that daughter of yours is also going to inherit your last name. And that identifies them as your son or your daughter. Jesus says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write on these the name of my God. They will be a son or a daughter of the Most High. It's a blessing of an identifying name of whose they are. But not only does he write on them this name, he writes on them the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. This identifies their citizenship. Here's my son, here's my daughter, and they are of my place. They are of my city. Jesus followers in the room today you are not ultimately a citizen of the United States of America. You are not ultimately a citizen of the state of Indiana. You are not ultimately a citizen of your city, town, where you live. Your citizenship is ultimately recorded and laid up in the city of God, the New Jerusalem. This changes everything about the way you view your citizenship here. How does that change everything? You're like, okay, forget it. I'm going to be a terrible citizen here. No, no, no. When we understand ultimately our citizenship is laid up in the new city, the new Jerusalem, it makes us all the more redemptive citizens in the here and now. But you're not, you're not ultimately from here. If you walk around with a holy homesickness, all that is is this reminder that one day you will find that home your soul's ultimately been looking for. Praise God for a holy homesickness. Don't be discouraged by a holy homesickness. When you get up some days and you want to ask, like when the discouraging part of that comes out and you're like, what's the point? Why are we even here? What? Oh my goodness, look at this. Whisper to your heart, holy homesickness, one day we'll be home. So he says, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And then he says this, it's a bit mysterious. Even like, you know, the best scholars are like, what does it mean when Jesus says, I'll write on them, I'll write on them my, own new, my own new name? I don't, I don't fully know. Is it a name that will be revealed at his coming? That we might not fully know yet, but we will know in seeing him? I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. 
He's going to write that name on his people. So while we might not know the full details of what it is that he will write on his people my own new name, here's what I'm rejoicing in, that he's writing it on his people. Thank you, Jesus. And one day, what we see with a bit of veiled eyes, we will see fully and finally, and we will know. As one of your children, part of your citizens, and one called by the Redeemer who holds the key to the kingdom. Isn't this worth it? Now really, isn't it worth it? I mean, some of you here have been through some stuff. All of us here are gonna go through some stuff. We're gonna be on the treadmill of our faith and it's gonna feel like mile 175.3. And we're just gonna wanna go like, can we just get off the faith treadmill a bit? And he'll whisper to us, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. One day when you see me face to face, you'll see it's all worth it. Because we need reminders of why we faithfully, patiently should endure. And these promises give us this reminder. If you have, grab the elements of communion. Jesus commends and he blesses the faithful, patient endurance of his people. With the elements of communion in our hand, this juice that represents the blood of Jesus, this bread that represents his body broken for us, I want us to, I want us to apply Calvary to these promises that we have here. He's made a way to enter his kingdom. Thanks be to God who sent his only son, who took the cross on our behalf and made a way for sinners to be in the presence of a holy God. He lays our opponents low. When Satan thought he had claimed the ultimate victory by, by putting the Son of God on a cross, Jesus rose victorious by rising three days later from the dead. Jesus wins every time. He keeps us from the hour of trial in his return. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood has covered us in such a way that when you return to judge unrighteousness, we are robed in the righteousness of Christ and are spared. He invites us into his presence permanently. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood spilled on our behalf and by which you've made a way for us to come into your presence, never to be kicked out. He identifies us as children of the king and citizens of the kingdom. Thank you, King Jesus, for dying a death a perfect king never deserved to die so that we could be called a son, daughter, and citizen of your city that we never deserved to inhabit. Right now, let's prepare our hearts to thank him and enter a time of communion in an appropriate, worshipful way. Take a few moments and I'll lead us through the